I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14, where we left off last week. We'll find our way to the first seven verses of Acts chapter 14, and in just a moment we'll read the text. When you hear the word fellowship, what do you think of? Hamburgers and hot dogs? (laughs) Ice cream? We're coming up on the time for watermelon fellowship. Maybe you think of that. And certainly, it is true that many of the times that we have fellowship together involve food. There's something about food that maybe opens our heart at the same time as we share a meal together. I I don't think it's something to be disregarded or missed. Uh, It is something all through the scriptures. Jesus often ate with his disciples and in those times shared with them not only physical fellowship, but also spiritual communion or spiritual fellowship with them. Maybe when you hear the word fellowship, you think of something like Acts 13.52. And the disciples were filled with joy And with the Holy Ghost, and before the service started, I was sitting up here on the platform and looking out across the auditorium and hearing the sound of voices as people were greeting one another and and laughing and having conversation, and certainly that's a tremendous blessing. Maybe that's what you think of when you think of fellowship and certainly Conversation and the joy that we share in Christ is a part of fellowship. But there's more to fellowship than that. And Acts chapter 14, verses 1 through 7, describes another aspect of fellowship that we may not think of right away when we're asked to define fellowship. This morning, I'd like to speak to you about the subject together in the gospel or the fellowship. Of the gospel. And let's direct our attention, if you would, to the first seven verses of Acts 14, where the Bible says, And it came to pass in Iconium that they went both together into the synagogue of the Jews, and so spake that a great multitude, both of the Jews and also of the Greeks, believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and made their minds evil affected against the brethren. Long time, therefore, abode they, speaking boldly in the Lord, which gave testimony unto the word of his grace, and granted signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the multitude of the city was divided, and part held with the Jews, and part with the apostles." And when there was an assault made, both of the Gentiles and also of the Jews with their rulers, to use them despitefully and to stone them, they were aware of it, and fled unto Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and unto the region that lieth round about. And there they preached the gospel." Now, the book of Acts is a moving tribute to the power of the gospel. Certainly, as we've been studying up to this point, we've found that the gospel 
changes lives. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And we've seen that the gospel has changed many communities and many people's lives. Many churches, by the time we come to Acts 14, have now been established for the glory of God and the further publication of the gospel. But we also find in the book of Acts that there is a reminder of the fellowship that we share around the gospel. So our fellowship is not primarily a fellowship of we like each other, or we're naturally attracted to each other, or we have a lot of things in common, although any or all of those things may be true, the main aspect of fellowship for a believer is that we fellowship around the gospel. That is, the thing that draws us together is the good news of what Jesus Christ has done for us. It's the thing that draws us into an assembly. And and we know that there's more to being a part of a church than just an understanding of the gospel, but at the basic level, that's where it begins. Before someone can be a part of a New Testament church, there has to be not only an understanding of the gospel, but a personal claiming of the gospel for yourself. That is, you must be born again in order to be a part of a New Testament church. And so what brings us together in an assembly like this is not so much that we all come from the same background or we all are from the same economic group or that we all uh, originally spoke the same language or anything like that. What brings us together is that the gospel has been real in our life And the gospel has brought us to this place. Our fellowship surrounds the goodness of God, which is manifested through the good news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for our sins in fulfillment of the scriptures. Our fellowship is based around our personal claiming of the gift of salvation, which has been given to us. The gospel binds us together. Now, in Acts chapter 14, we're finding the progress of the gospel. As Paul and Barnabas are traveling through Asia Minor, which today on a map would be labeled the country of Turkey, and the direct area where they are is almost in the center of what is today the the modern country of Turkey. Incidentally, many of these cities still exist. The ruins from this time still exist, and you can go to the country of Turkey, to Asia Minor, and you can see some of the things that still exist, the ruins of these cities from those ancient times, and people still live there today. But we find that Paul and Barnabas had to leave the town where they were preaching And that was because of some persecution. And now they have made their way to the city of Iconium. You'll find that they're not going to be in Iconium very long, but they'll also have to leave Iconium because of persecution. But as I was studying this passage, something jumped out at my attention in verse number one when it says, they went both together 
into the synagogue of the Jews. What you're reading about in verse 1 is fellowship. And this is the first thought that I want you to consider this morning, the partnership of the gospel. The partnership of the gospel. By now, Paul and Barnabas are facing some great opposition to the gospel, but the fellowship that they shared together gave them the strength to go on. You'll notice in the previous chapter that the source of the persecution that they were facing was the Jewish people in the synagogue in that city where they had been. But do you notice in verse 1 the very first place that they went when they got to Iconium? They got to the city and the Bible says they went both together into the synagogue. This was a place where they believed God wanted them to preach. This was a place where there were some who were hungry to hear the gospel and to recognize the reality that Jesus Christ is the Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament. So Paul and Barnabas went both together into the synagogue. I want to make the point this morning that one of the greatest fellowship activities that we can participate in together is declaring the gospel. There's nothing that binds the hearts of two church members together quite like going together to share the gospel with other people. And sometimes people are saying, you know, I want to make some connections and I want to be a part of what is going on in the church. If I could just urge you to take the opportunity to get involved in going with the gospel with some other people in the church family, you will find that this binds your heart together with theirs Because you're laboring in the things of the Lord, you're going together to share the gospel. Certainly, there's other aspects of fellowship which are important, but we ought not to neglect the partnership that we have in the gospel. We, as a church family, are called to strive together for the faith of the gospel. A major part of our reason for being is to Take the gospel to every creature. And that requires every member to have a part and to be involved in this great task. And so we encourage you to be involved as partners in the gospel. In Philippians chapter 1, when the Apostle Paul was remembering the church at Philippi, he made this statement about them in verse number 3. He said, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making request with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. What was it that brought joy to Paul's heart about the church at Philippi? They fellowshiped together in the gospel. There's something special about fellowshipping around the truth that has changed our life. And that fellowship is more than just talking together about how important the gospel is to us. That fellowship is when we take the gospel and we go to others who have not heard the gospel and together we share with them the work of God in our lives. There is a partnership that is mentioned in the gospel. In verse 1, we also find there's a productivity of the gospel. The gospel is good seed that brings forth fruit. And the Bible tells us at the end of verse 1 that as they came into the synagogue of the Jews and they spake about the word of God, 
that a great multitude, both of the Jews and also of the Greeks, believed. In other words, on that day, as they began to preach and show from the Old Testament scriptures that Jesus is, in fact, the one who was prophesied, that Jesus had died for for their sins, and that there was redemption that was available, there were a great number of people who said, we believe that. That's the message that we've been waiting for. That is the thing that we've wanted to hear for so long. And so they put their faith in Jesus Christ. And there was a great movement within that synagogue on that day of people who trusted in Christ and became believers or followers of Jesus. I want to point out to you this morning that the preaching of the gospel calls for a decision. What will you do with Jesus? We frequently preach the gospel from this pulpit, and perhaps you've sat through some of those messages, and you feel in your heart, well, the gospel may call for a decision, but I've not made a decision. Oh, to the contrary. You have made a decision. Because when you chose not to respond to the gospel, that is, not to obey the gospel through faith and repentance, then you made a decision about the gospel. Now, God is merciful, and we hope that he'll give you more opportunities to respond to the gospel. But don't confuse yourself by thinking, I'm just in a place of having not made a decision because to not make a decision is to make a decision to not obey the gospel. Many on this day heard the gospel. They were moved. They were called to a place to obey the gospel and their lives were changed. Like so many of us have experienced, the gospel is a life-changing message. The gospel ought to be heeded. I wonder this morning if you have responded to the gospel. I wonder if you have obeyed the gospel and if you have come to Christ in personal faith, turning from your sins and casting yourself upon the mercy of God. I wonder this morning if you have been born again. And if you've not been born again, can I urge you that today is the day of salvation. Certainly in verse number one of chapter 14, for a great multitude of people, it was the day of salvation. It was the day that they would mark down and remember. They would never forget the time that they heard about Jesus and exercised faith in his free gift and his sacrifice in their place. And their lives were turned upside down and changed. By the way, The gospel today still has power to convince and convert. God is able to change people's lives. The gospel has not lost its power. It's not diminished. Sometimes we read about things like this in Acts chapter 14, and we think, well, those were the far-off days. Those were the things from long ago, and the gospel just doesn't work that way anymore. No, my friend, the gospel still has power. The gospel is still the way that God works in people's lives. So there's a partnership in the gospel and there's a productivity of the gospel. And we yearn to see that productivity, to see people come to faith in Christ. That's why we go out into the community and we speak with folks and reason with them from the scriptures and 
offer to study the Bible together with them so that they can come to a place where they understand their need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But then we find something more, which is also an aspect of fellowship. And you could just imagine how Paul and Barnabas were feeling as a great multitude believed on Jesus. I mean, this is exciting stuff. There's nothing quite so exciting for a believer as being able to share the gospel with someone else and then seeing them come to faith in Christ. It'll put a spring in your step like few other things. And here's a great multitude. And so you can imagine that they're happy and they're excited about all that's going on. But verse number two says, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and made their minds evil affected against the brethren. And this reminds us that as we fellowship in the gospel, there is a prejudice against the gospel. There is an enemy that we are fighting against as we preach the gospel. That enemy, we're told very clearly, his desire is to blind the minds of those who believe not, lest they should believe the glorious gospel. He doesn't want them to see the truth. He wants to block their mind and their understanding from coming to the knowledge of the truth. So while there was a great multitude that believed, there was also a group of people that got really, really upset. It's hard to explain the hatred, the venom, and the anger that some people have against the gospel, the word of God, and the people of God. They usually have different ways of explaining it, and justifying their behavior. But I want to point out to you that this type of response to the gospel is not something new. It's been around since the time that Jesus died. It's been around since the time that the apostles first began preaching this message. We ought not be surprised that some people will not appreciate this message. Verse 2 says, These unbelieving Jews came along... And they stirred up the Gentiles. That phrase, stirred up, means it's like a violent agitation. They were going around saying, did you hear what they're saying? That's ridiculous. I can't believe they're talking like that. We've got to put a stop to this nonsense. We've got to get these guys out of here. You get with us. We're going to stop this right now. And everybody's kind of getting stirred up and angry and upset. And Paul and Barnabas are hearing the rumbling in the crowd. Things are turning in a direction that is going to be very difficult. It's amazing that the gospel could produce such warm acceptance and eager admiration in one person. And just next to them, another person will be incensed with anger and violent rejection. How could you explain such a thing? In an assembly of people, people will have such different responses to the gospel. Well, ultimately, as I've pointed out to you, opposition to the gospel is inspired by Satan, who wants to keep men enslaved in their sins and their self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is sin. These religious individuals thought 
that they were right with God. And one of the reasons that they were angry was that they could not stand that Paul and Barnabas would point out their guilt before God. They were self-righteous. They thought, we're fine. We're Jewish men. We're good. We've got everything figured out. But what they needed to see was their guilt before God so that they could be reconciled to him. Satan was keeping them from understanding the gospel. And so the result was a prejudice or a controversy. As these unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles, they made their minds evil affected against the brethren. Now, when the Gentiles who've heard this see Paul and Barnabas, they think those good-for-nothing guys, they're causing trouble. They're they're making an issue. Uh, They need to be thrust out of this city. We need to deal with those guys. Now, here's Paul and Barnabas. They're just preaching the gospel. They they love these people. They want to see them understand the truth of the gospel so they can be saved just like they've been saved. They want people to know who Jesus is so they can come to faith in Christ. And here's this crowd of people that's looking at them like you are the enemy and we're going to get you. That's a troubling place to be. But I'll tell you this, when you're in a place like this, it's good to have a brother standing right next to you. So that at least when you're looking at the crowd, you're not saying, I'm in trouble. You're saying, we're in trouble. (laughs) So fellowship sometimes involves facing this kind of difficulty in in, in this rejection or this response to the gospel. This morning, I want to remind you that though the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, the gospel is still highly controversial and is hated by the world. The the enemy of men's souls is trying to suppress the message of the gospel. He's taken as his enemy anyone who makes it a serious business to preach the gospel to the extent and the degree that Lehigh Valley Baptist Church decides we're going to preach the gospel no matter what happens. We're going to have an enemy who's going to come against us. We're going to enter into spiritual combat or warfare. We need to understand that this is not going to be an easy thing, and we need to fellowship together in this. Now, verse 3, as we move along in the passage, indicates that God, in turn, gave Paul and Barnabas power to continue preaching the gospel. So, in the face of this rejection, this this uh, controversy, the, the violent opinion, verse 3 says, they didn't back down. Long time, therefore, abode they, speaking boldly in the Lord, which gave testimony unto the word of His grace, and granted signs and wonders to be done by their hands. In other words, God validated their ministry by giving them power. God allowed them to demonstrate that what they were speaking was true through the miraculous works that they were able to do. And you may ask the question this morning, well, why don't we have that power to do these kind of miracles? Well, the main difference is that Paul and Barnabas couldn't hold up the finished word of God and say, thus saith the Lord... They were giving a testimony about something that they were eyewitnesses of or that they had heard from other eyewitnesses 
And God was putting a stamp of approval. Today, when we stand up, we say, here's the standard of truth. You can measure what we preach, what we teach, what we believe by the word of God. Help yourself. Take the Bible. Compare scripture with scripture. Let's make sure that we're scriptural in what we're saying. This is the standard. That doesn't mean that there's no power. That means that God has put the power into his word. God has put the the authority into thus saith the Lord. So Paul and Barnabas were given power. This power demonstrated that what they were speaking was true. And this was God's gracious way of giving the enemies of the gospel space to think. Maybe we shouldn't be opposing this. Maybe we shouldn't be going against the gospel because if the gospel is true, if what they're saying is true, we would be opposing God. And this is the way that God tends to work. Though men are often violently rejecting the truth of God and, and, and doggedly determined to go after their own way, pursue after their own path, God is so long suffering and merciful. And he works in their lives, though they're stubborn and rebellious. He works in their lives to to draw their attention again and again and again to the gospel. It could be this morning that he worked in your life in exactly that way. And if you're saved today and that is your story, you ought to say all glory to God for his mercy and his grace in my life. Now, though we don't expect this morning to be able to do signs and wonders, we do expect that the gospel has power. We do expect the power of God to be real in our lives. We do expect that God is real to us and we have a real relationship with him. And we need that relationship in order to preach the gospel with power. If we go forth in the power of our own flesh, in the strength of our own arguments and our abilities to try to persuade men, we will always fall flat. We need to have the power of the Spirit of God to capture men's attention. It is the Spirit of God through the Word of God. As the man of God speaks, that brings people to conviction. He convicts them of sin and righteousness and judgment. And without the Spirit of God and His power, we couldn't even hope to do the work that God has called us to do. But what a joy it is as we fellowship together around the gospel and we see the power of God come to bear in someone's life. We see a person come under Holy Ghost conviction... We see them become troubled about their need of Christ and how we can rejoice when we see God working in this way as God answers our prayers and God moves on our behalf. And we say that's something that God has done as that person comes to repentance and puts their faith in Jesus Christ. So God gave them power to preach the gospel. Fifth of all, in verses 4 through 6, They came into a place of peril because of the gospel. So all of this working together, you would say, well, it would be nice if it would just calm down. All the people who are opposed would get saved. The opposition would go away. And then they could stay there and preach and lots more people would come to Christ. But that's not usually how it happens. 
what happened was that it got more and more and more heated as the opposition got stronger and stronger and stronger as they're teaching and preaching and more people are getting saved. The work of God is going forward. Verse 4 says, but the multitude of the city was divided. Jesus said something very interesting to his disciples during his earthly ministry. He said that he did not come to bring peace, but a sword. He said that the gospel would have the effect, oftentimes, of bringing division between some of the closest relationships of life. What happened in this city of Iconium is that a lot of people got really upset. There were people who had believed the gospel, and there were people who were adamantly opposed to the gospel, and there was a sharp division in this community. They, they, they didn't see eye to eye. There wasn't an agreement, and sometimes this happens. The gospel brings division. Sometimes the gospel brings division in a family. Sometimes the gospel brings division to friends. I've talked to people before who got saved. God began to change their life. And pretty soon, all of their friends began to come around and say, what's wrong with you? What happened to you? We used to have fun together, and you're not interested in those things. Yeah, all you're ever interested in is reading the Bible and going to church. What's, what's taken over you? Did you get into some, some kind of a cult or something? Have any of you experienced this kind of talking? Amen. Hey, listen. That's normal. That's natural. Because they think it's strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot. You're, yeah, your life has changed. Some things, you're not saying that you're better than them. It's just that Christ has changed your life. You want the same thing for them. You want them to come to the same place, but they're not interested in that. And pretty soon, can two walk together except they be agreed? You come to a place where there's a division. There's a division in this city. And then this division was heightened. And in verse 5, an assault was made, both of the Gentiles and also of the Jews with their rulers to use them despitefully and to stone them. And I don't know exactly what this assault looked like, But the word assault means a violent attack. So there was some kind of a violent attack which took place where the unbelievers were coming to where they thought the preachers were and their intention was, according to the text, to use them despitefully. That is, they were going to harm them. They were going to bring physical pain to them. And then their intention was to stone them. Now, the idea of stoning is that an accusation would be made of how a person was guilty uh, before the Old Testament law. No doubt, in this case, they were accusing them of blasphemy because they were preaching that Jesus Christ is God. And this was the common accusation against the apostles and against those believers in the first century that they were blasphemous, they were preaching another God than the true God, which of course Jesus Christ is God, but they were being accused of blasphemy. And then what would happen when they were stoned is that people would take stones. And you're thinking like 
stones, like, you know, pick up a rock, stone, and throw. That's not the biblical idea of stoning. Stoning is more like stone and throw that on the person. The intention of stoning was to kill the person who was being stoned by crushing them with rocks. This was the intention. They wanted to find these gospel preachers. They wanted to heap stones upon them and crush the life out of them. Now, I've had some perhaps difficult encounters in evangelism. I've had some opportunities where people were rude to me. I've even had some times when people threatened me. I have never had someone pick up a weapon and try to use it against me. Praise the Lord. I suspect that most of you could say the same thing. Most of you have not had someone pick up a weapon and try to take your life because you're preaching the gospel. But that's what these preachers were facing. And if I could point this out to you, which I have done repeatedly through the book of Acts, this kind of thing happens today all over the world. While we may not experience it here in our country, and we can thank God for that, in many countries of this world, to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ with clarity is to bring a death sentence upon yourself. These men had this type of a response. They realized that people were very angry. The anger was causing a lot of trouble for the believers, those who had been saved there in Iconium. Later, the Apostle Paul would talk about this time in his ministry. And in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Verses 11 and 12, he said this, "...persecutions, afflictions which came unto me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra." That's the three cities that are in rapid succession here in chapter 13 and 14. "...what persecutions I endured, but out of them all the Lord delivered me." And then he says this, "...yea." And all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Persecution is a reality for those who are going to preach the gospel. If you think, well, I'll just be super nice about the way I preach and I won't have to face persecution. That's unscriptural. It's, it's not, I mean, I, I'm not saying that you should try to be rude or arrogant. I, I'm not suggesting... That, that you shouldn't try to uh, be a winsome witness for Christ. Uh, but I, I want to point out to you that no matter how kind you are, no matter how careful you are, no matter how wise you are, at some point you are going to encounter persecution because of the things that you preach and believe. It's, it's a promise from God. We ought not to be surprised. But again, I want to point out to you what a blessing it is that when we go through those seasons of persecution, it is a tremendous blessing to us when we're standing shoulder to shoulder with a brother in Christ. We're facing that together. We can go to our knees in prayer and we can cry out to the Lord together about that persecution. We can encourage one another, strengthen your hands, brother. We're, we're going to get through this. The Lord is going to bring us through this. Let's be faithful to him. Let's not back down. 
There's a place for fellowship there in the place of persecution. Finally, verse 7 says, and there they preached the gospel. Where? Well, it's the next town, Lystra. They went to the next town of Lystra, and there they preached the gospel. And this is what I want to point out here. The pressing on in the gospel. These guys just didn't give up. I mean, this is, by the time they get to Iconium, this is the second time at least that they have faced severe persecution and they've been run out of town. Get out of our town. We don't want you here. Maybe they're thinking third strike before we're out. No, they're thinking God has called us to do a job. And we're not going to back down from that job. So they went from Antioch to Iconium to Lystra. And as soon as they got to Lystra, they said, here's another place where people need to hear about Jesus. Here's a place where people need to hear the gospel. And we're going to go together just like we did in Iconium. We're going to go together and we're going to share the gospel with those who are here. These men didn't stop, even though they faced great persecution. They just went to the next city, and they continued preaching. And I love that the emphasis in verse 7 is the same emphasis as it is in the beginning of verse 1. It's on the fact that they are together preaching the gospel. In other words, they are still fellowshipping in the gospel. What a joy that is. Now, with all this in our minds, I just want you to think about a couple of things. First of all, are you a part of the fellowship of the gospel? Have you partaken of the gospel? To you, is the gospel good news? Have you personally put your faith in Jesus Christ? Have you been born again by the Spirit of God? Is the gospel a priority? Is it important to you? Is the gospel what has brought you to this place? I sincerely hope that you have understood and believed the gospel of Jesus Christ. I sincerely hope that you've been born again and your life has been transformed by the grace of God. Now, if that's true in your life, and I hope it's true, if it's not true then today should be the day that you seek God with all your heart and get that matter settled. But if that's true in your life, then the second question I want you to consider is this. If the gospel has changed my life, am I participating in the work of the gospel here at Lehigh Valley Baptist Church? Now, some of you are from other places, and I hope that you'll just insert the name of the church where it's your church home in that place. But I'm speaking to those who are here, Lehigh Valley Baptist Church. So I want to ask you the question, are you a part of that work? Is that a passion? I realize we're all busy. We've got, we've got things going on in our life. But is that a priority in your life to be a part of going with the gospel? Because what God wills, what God desires, is for every member of a New Testament church to be actively engaged in this work. God wants all of us to be standing shoulder to shoulder with the armor of God 
pressing forward into enemy territory, proclaiming that there is only one way of salvation, and His name is Jesus. We invite you to join us in that work. You say, well, I'm a little bit concerned about how to go about that. I I don't know if I have the right words to say. I'm not sure if I would know how to answer people's questions. That's what fellowship is for. That's why we say, come on, be a part of this. We'll find somebody who's a little farther down that road who can take you along with them and show you this is what's involved. These are the kinds of things that you might face. Here's some things you could say. Here's what the Bible answers are. And we can labor together, together in the gospel. Because fellowship is more than pies and cakes and chicken and hamburgers. Fellowship is more than, this is what I read in my devotions, and would you pray with me about this? Fellowship also involves, let's go together and let's proclaim the good news to a world that desperately, desperately needs it. This morning, are you a part of the fellowship of the gospel?